The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. This life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study in 1 John this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. So if you need to use 1 John 1.9 to get back in fellowship, you have that privilege in the privacy of your priesthood. And then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to study your word today, that your word tells us not only how to be saved, but it tells us about the new life that we have in Christ, the provisions, the uh, blessings, the spiritual assets that you have given us, and it also maps out for us how to grow, how to advance spiritually, and helps us to understand the different things that we need to learn, the different things we need to do as we apply doctrine in our lives to, to grow. Father, as we study this portion of your word this morning, we pray that we would be responsive to it. Help us to understand these things, to see how they apply in our own lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. How do we grow spiritually? That's really a major theme in 1 John. Of course, 1 John, as I've stated again and again, is talking about fellowship. Fellowship is related to the concept of abiding in Christ. Jesus used that term in the Upper Room Discourse. In John chapter 15, we are to abide in Him. John picks up on that same verbiage in 1 John, talking about how we are to abide in Christ. As we abide in Christ, as we remain in Him, remaining in fellowship, we advance spiritually by applying doctrine. We advance through different stages of spiritual growth. For example, we have outlined this chart. I want you to keep this in your mind. The three stages of spiritual growth. Advance. The first stage is comprised, is called spiritual childhood. Spiritual childhood is used, I have the word technon here in the Greek, also paideon, and John uses the word paideon here in 1 John chapter 2 verses 14 and following to describe spiritual infancy. There are five different spiritual skills that we have talked about that are essential to getting in place, to practicing 
to making a part of our thinking if we are going to advance beyond spiritual childhood. First is confession, because if we don't confess, we're not in fellowship, we're not filled with the Spirit, and anything that we do is a product of our sin nature, whether it's good or whether it's bad, whether it's religious, whether it's irreligious, it is still a product of our sin nature. So we have to confess our sins in order to be restored to fellowship and to recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. Having said that, we need to go forward. That just puts us in a position to advance. It doesn't move us anywhere. It's like... Um, it just resumed the potential for spiritual growth, and then we have to walk by means of the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18 and Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. We advance by means of faith, trusting doctrine, trusting in the promises of God, the principles of His Word, and that is a faith rest drill. Second Peter 1, 3, and 4 tells us that God has given us everything necessary for life and godliness, and that we appropriate that by means of His promises. Uh, we Then we go to the next stage, grace orientation and doctrinal orientation. These two work in tandem. Our grace orientation, we come to understand that everything in the spiritual life is based on who and what God is, what Jesus Christ did on the cross, not who and what we are. Doctrinal orientation is the process of renovating our thinking so that we learn to think as God thinks. The mind of Christ is the Scriptures, Second, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.16. And so we have to have the mind of Christ or the thinking of Christ in our thinking. Second Peter 3.18 states that we grow by means of grace and truth. That is the means of growth under the teaching ministry and the sanctifying ministry of God the Holy Spirit. That's spiritual childhood. Then we go through spiritual adolescence, and that's where we learn to think in terms of what God is doing in our lives, in terms of His eternal program, preparing us for our place to rule and reign with Christ in the Millennial Kingdom, to rule and judge angels, and on into eternity. This is where most people fail. Most Christians never get past this stage. They fall out at this point for one reason or another, they become distracted, they lose their motivation, and they become uh, failures in terms of spiritual warfare, as we're going to see in our lesson this morning. And then spiritual adulthood involves the three uh, aspects of the love triplex, personal love for God the Father, impersonal or unconditional love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. And then the result of that is uh, inner happiness, a contentment, tranquility, Stability that is not affected by circumstances, people, or events, so that we can uh, focus on what God has for us, and as a result of applying the other skills, we have this kind of tranquility and stability in our own lives. Now, we have to keep that in mind as we go through this study in this next section in 1 John so that we can understand it. So open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 13 and 14. We'll just take a brief review to pick up the context. 1 John chapter 2, verse 13. John says, I write to you little children. This is the word technion. It's the diminutive form, and it's a term of endearment. It is not talking about spiritual status. It is in contrast to the word paideon, which is used in verse 13 for the spiritual infant. I write to you little children for... Your sins are forgiven you because of His name's sake. That's our motivation at every stage in the spiritual life. 
understanding grace and responding to all that God has done for us. Verse 13, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Now, I want you to notice, as I keep pointing out, the similarity between verse 13 and verse 14. Verse 13 uses a present tense verb. Verse 14 uses a past tense, but other than that, they are the same. For the, as far as fathers, the spiritual adults go, John has little to say. He emphasizes the fact that they have known Jesus Christ. The term who is from the beginning is a reference to God the Son and His eternality. That's the context of the book. The problems with certain Christological doctrines, and there were those who were doubting them, but John is emphasizing that. So the fathers, the mature believers, are not being affected by the false doctrine and the false concepts that are being promoted in Asia Minor at this time. Then he writes to the second category. I write to you young men. In verse 13 he says, I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. And uh, as I stated last time, this is like a way many people preach a message. They tell you what they're going to tell you. They tell you and then they tell you what they told you. And John is going to outline for us the three things he's going to address. Fathers, young men, and children. And when he says to young men, he says, because you have overcome the wicked one. That's the only thing he says there. Now, look at the second stanza of verse 14. There he says, I have written to you. He changes to a past tense verb because he is reminding them. It's not just what he's writing now, but he's reminding them of what he has said to them, obviously in writing on a previous occasion. We have no record of that. He says, I have written to you young men, and then he says three things about them. Because you are strong, second, and the word of God abides in you, and third, and you have overcome the wicked one. So by looking at the expansion of his reason here in verse 14, we understand that what he is saying to the young men is directly related to their passing certain steps, certain tests, in the angelic conflict. This is further developed when we look at what he says. goes on to say to the young men in verse 15. He gives them the positive encouragement in 14b, but in 15 he comes back with a reminder and a prohibition. Do not love the world, that is the cosmic system or the things in the world. And then he explains why. If anyone loves the world, that is the cosmic system, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, when we talk about the world, or the world system, the Greek word used here is the word cosmos. looks like this in the Greek. K-O-S-M-O-S, cosmos. And it refers to a system, usually an orderly or organized system. And so it doesn't refer to necessarily overt activity, but it's a reference to the kind of thinking that characterizes the world especially in terms of what we call human viewpoint or paganism. And James 3, 13 through 15, identifies this as the thinking of demons. 
So immediately we realize that cosmic thinking or the world system is a term that is related to Satan and the demonic. And that is, and, and he, there's a reference to Satan in 14 that you have overcome the wicked one. Hapaneros in the Greek is a title for Satan in the New Testament. Furthermore, we see that because you are strong is a word that also is used in various contexts in the New Testament to refer to the believer's role in spiritual warfare. Therefore, in order to understand what is going on here, we're going to have to stop and take some time to look at the angelic conflict. Before we get to that, I want to exegete the passage a little more. But one of the reasons I'm doing this is because, as I announced and explained on Wednesday nights, I know some of you weren't here, we um, had a meeting last Sunday where we uh, ended Sunday school. And we started a prep school. The purpose for a prep school is to train the young people, train our children, and to prepare them for adulthood, to prepare them to sit in a congregation, to be able to understand what is being taught when they reach an age of 13 or 14 and come sit upstairs, they can understand, comprehend what I am saying. They'll be introduced to the vocabulary and concepts, of course, gradually as they, as they come along. We developed a curriculum. A curriculum is a list of subjects, various subjects, categories, doctrines, biblical books, topics, that based on what is taught in, from the pulpit ministry here to prepare those kids. Now, we've outlined that curriculum. Now, some of the things that are in that curriculum I haven't taught in a lot of detail. And so one of the things that I'm doing in the next couple of years is that I'm paying attention to what's in that list of subjects that we're going to be teaching, and I'm going to be spending a little more time when I come to those subjects developing them from the pulpit in order to give information and material to Sunday school teachers. You see, the the, the things have gotten so out of kilter in... 99.9% of churches in America that most of the teaching is being done by the untrained, unprofessional layperson who works 40, 50, 60 hours a week at some other job and then at at, uh, uh, 10 o'clock on Saturday night sits down and says, I have a Sunday school lesson to prepare tomorrow. Let me find something, memorize it, find somebody else's outline, scope it out, and then I'm going to go down and I'm going to teach it, either to an adult class or to, or to the kids. And so the person who has a three- or four-year seminary degree, who is professionally trained, who is paid on a full-time basis to study the Bible, although most pastors don't do that. I don't know what they do, but they don't study the Bible. Um, they're out doing all kinds of other things. They're coaching. They, they, the view of the pastor today is he's the leader administrator. He's the, the CEO of the corporation. And he's out there giving people a vision or planning or coming up with, with flow charts and, and, um, and coaching everybody and sort of organizing everybody in the church to do the work of the ministry. But he's not really the one teaching. My question is, if the pastor who has the gift of pastor-teacher and is trained to study the Word and extract from the Word of God the eternal doctrinal principles that are there, if this man who's gifted to do that isn't training the Sunday school teachers by teaching doctrine from the pulpit, then where are they getting it? I mean, you've got a bunch of untrained amateurs running around downstairs trying to teach kids, and they, they just sort of generate it out from their own 
soul somehow, that, that, that they had some mystical experience with God on Saturday night, and then come in and teach it the next day. Well, no wonder kids grow up in most Sunday school classes biblically illiterate and doctrinally ignorant. So we're not going to allow that to happen. We've never allowed that to happen at this church, but we're, we've improved the program uh, and the curriculum tremendously. And as part of that, I'm going to be taking time here and there to go into a little more detail where we might back out of the subject a little bit in order to go through the doctrine, take two or three, four weeks to go through a doctrine. I know angelic conflict comes up. And whoever is downstairs teaching right now needs to get the tape because they'll be teaching it next summer. And on Wednesday night, they're going to be teaching uh, this, this fall, they'll be teaching Christian soldier. And that whole aspect of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6 is part of this whole study and part of that study. So this is important for that. So there are a number of things that, that are coming up downstairs that, that um, uh, we need to address and, and teach from the pulpit. So that's a part of why I am doing it this way. But also because as John addresses the subject in verses 14 through 17 to the young men, the adolescent believer, and he praises them because of the fact that they have had a measure of victory over Satan in a, in a certain realm of their spiritual growth, that they have advanced beyond the distractions that Satan throws at the immature baby believer, that uh, all of the things he says to them presuppose that his readers have an understanding of the angelic conflict and the believer's role in that angelic conflict in terms of spiritual warfare. So we have to make sure that we understand uh, what that background is exactly. So in verse 14 we read, uh, I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And I have written to you, young men, the aniskoi, the vocative plural, for the adolescent. Because you are strong, the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Now, he's not going to address children until last. I find it interesting that he starts with adults and go to children. Most of us would start with children and go the other direction. But he has started with the adults, and he moves down the chain. And uh, I think it's because he wants the children to recognize what's coming up, what is ahead of them in their spiritual growth. Now, last time I talked about motivation, that, that the motivation for children, for adolescents, and for mature believers is grace. Often we start coming to church, we're motivated by all kinds of things that are non-essential. Programs, people, events. Some people like to go to church because of the music. Some people like to go to church because of social programs. Some people like to go to churches because they're divided up into certain groups. They have uh, a young marriage group or they have a um, you know, teenage group or they have a college and career group or they have a singles group. And so they look to the church for their social life. And unfortunately, so many churches have gotten involved into that that the church becomes the center of the social life for people in the church. There's nothing wrong with having a wonderful social life with other believers. But that's a secondary purpose to the local church. It's not the primary purpose. What's happened, I think, is that that people have substituted a social model for the church for an educational model of the church. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 says that that, that we are to 
the, the gift of pastor, teacher, and evangelist are designed to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Jesus told Peter that, that he was to feed the sheep. These are educational concepts. The primary purpose and function of a church is to educate people. That doesn't mean you can't have a wonderful social life with people, but that's a byproduct of the teaching ministry. It's like when I went to college. Uh, we went to college in order to learn things, not to have a good social life. Those who had a great social life usually weren't in college for very long. But you go to college to get educated, but you still have a great social life. I had a great time, almost too great a time. But we, it's enjoyable. But if you go someplace for a social life, you don't necessarily get educated. So we have to make sure that we're there for the, for the right reason. And today, people go to churches for all kinds of things. In fact, when I was in Dallas, uh, I had an interesting conversation with a friend of mine there. And he was telling me about the problems that he's had. And this is a man who's a seminary graduate and pastor. And, and he's been going around looking for a church. And he said, you wouldn't believe how pathetic it is on the church scene in Dallas. Now, Dallas, for those of you who don't know, Dallas is considered the buckle on the Bible belt. And uh, that means that there's, a, and one of the things that impressed me when I first went to Dallas was there seems to be a church on literally every corner. I've never been anywhere where there were so many churches. And he was telling me about the fact that he, we drove past one church and he pointed it out. And it was supposedly, a, it was a very large church and very conservative uh, denominational church. And he said, you know, if you go to that church, they have a 12-step program for any problem or addiction you might have. They have youth programs, singles, ministries, everything. Uh, there's nothing you miss out on. There's nothing out in the world that you can't find in that church to try to scratch whatever your itch might be. So churches aren't teaching doctrine. They're just duplicating the world. He also made another interesting comment. And, and since I haven't been around to too many other churches, I, I was just appalled at this. He made the comment, he says, I always go to, when I have to go to these churches, I always sit out there, always make sure I wear a suit and tie. He always wears a coat and tie to church because we're going to church to honor God. The only question I ask most people is, if you had an audience with the president today, what would you be wearing? Well, you've got an audience with God, and, well, look how you're dressed. So uh, he goes in there, and he says, I always just sit there, fold my arms, and stare at the pastor because he said, I haven't been at a church in a long time when the pastor had anything on but a nice pair of slacks and a golf shirt. So don't people have respect for God and for worship anymore? No, they're coming to have a good time on Sunday morning. They're not coming to honor God who is the sovereign of the universe, who has revealed himself to us in his word, who has sent his son to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins, and who has given us in the completed canon of Scripture everything we need to learn to live the spiritual life. We've lost the whole concept of what we've been given. There's no gratitude anymore. It's a loss of respect and honor. It's just something we do on Sunday morning. So we have to understand that the motivation comes from grace, and we have to avoid being distracted by all these programs that get in the way. Now John says, I've written to you young men because you are strong. Because you are strong. Now, the word here for strong is iskuros in the Greek. Iskuros. See if I'm going to run out of space on the overhead here. 
looks like this. I-S-C-H-U-R-O-S. Iskuros, it means strong. Sometimes it means mighty. But it refers to, a, uh, in this case, an inner or spiritual strength. Now, babies do not have that inner spiritual strength. That only comes as a result of growth, a result of maturity, a result of learning and applying doctrine in times of testing. Strong is the opposite of weak, as I pointed out last time. The Greek word for, for weakness is asthenes. A-S-T-H-E-N-E-S. Asthenes. Now, a person can be weak for two reasons. First, because of immaturity. This is the idea of the weaker brother in Romans 14, 1 through 12, and 1 Corinthians 8, 7, which states, However, not all men have this knowledge. So, it's a lack of knowledge of doctrine. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak, asthenes, is defiled. The reason the conscience is weak is because it lacks knowledge. The second reason, other than immaturity for spiritual weakness, is due to extended carnality and reversionism. 1 Corinthians 11.30 states, For this reason, that is, because of the carnality of the Corinthian believers and their abuse at the Lord's table, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. They are spiritually weak. They have become spiritually impotent because of their extended carnality. So, weakness means that the believer then is unable to persevere or endure in times of testing and times of adversity. So when the weak believer faces adversity, what happens is they push the panic button, they cave into emotion, they uh, get scared, frightened, they respond with mental attitude sins of anger or bitterness or whatever it may be, and it just they try to handle the situation through their own sin nature, and it just makes matters worse. The solution to weakness, first of all, is confession. If the problem is carnality and um, sin, and then second, it is learning and applying doctrine by walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. Scripture says that that produces a strengthening in our soul called edification. Edification, and it produces a strengthening, and that is why we have used a diagram of the soul fortress. The soul fortress has the idea of, a, of construction. And we're going to come back and, and uh, examine that model, the idea of construction, that a foundation is laid. And the foundation on the soul fortress is the filling of the Holy Spirit. That when we sin, we're out of the fortress, and outside the fortress is the world system. We're outside in the world system, we're in enemy territory, and there is no protection from the assaults of the enemy. The only place where there is protection is to be inside the fortress in a defensive position. We build a fortress by learning and applying those spiritual skills that we have talked about. Each spiritual skill represents a, a brick in the fortress. And as that is constructed over time, we become stronger and stronger, and our soul is protected. Now, this idea of strength, or iskuro, is also indicated in Ephesians chapter 6. I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Ephesians is one of Paul's 
prison epistles. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, is a key passage on the armor of God, which is another metaphor, same as the one that um, I've used for the soul fortress, except this is a biblically inspired metaphor. Paul says in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Now, you would think by looking at the English translation that the mandate to be strong is um, from the, from, uh, the same word as skuros, but it's not. It is from the word dunamis, which has to do with power. And it's potential power. It's the same word. It's, this is the word from which we get um, dynamite. And you're always going to have somebody who doesn't know Greek very well say, say related to some kind of explosive power. But it's potential power. And it is the power that we get from God the Holy Spirit. Dunamis is often used in relationship to the Holy Spirit. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His strength. It is God's strength that protects us, not our strength. It is God's ability, not our ability. It is God's provision, not our provision. It is the Spirit of God, not the flesh of man, that enables us to handle problems and to be protected in spiritual warfare. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His strength. That is our source of strength. Now, he goes on to explain how we are to do that. Starting in verse 12, or verse 11, he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, I want you to circle in your Bibles that word stand in verse 11. That you may be able to stand against the wiles or strategies of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That means that the enemy really isn't uh, another person, another human being. Ultimately, the enemy has a spiritual dimension, and it's part of a broader conflict involving angels and demons. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. Those terms all relate to different uh, different degrees of organization in uh, the demonic hierarchy. We'll come back and look at that in detail eventually. For we do not wrestle against... I'm just introducing the subject this morning. Uh, We do not... But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenlies. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand... In the evil day, and having done all to stand. Now, I want you to circle that word withstand, and then circle the final word stand, and then in verse 14, we have another repetition of that word stand, therefore. Now, there are two words that are used here. The word for stand is the uh, Greek word for is the Greek word histemi. Looks like this. There's a rough breathing mark that's usually transliterated as an H. Histemi. H-I-S-T-E-M-I. And then to stand against, or the word translated withstand, is 
the compound from the Greek word anti, so it comes across as ant histemi. A-N-T-H-I-S-T-E-M-I. Both of these words are used in military literature for taking a stand, taking up a defensive posture against the enemy. These are not aggressive terms. He doesn't say attack the devil. He doesn't say rebuke the devil. He doesn't say get in a fight with the devil. He says stand, stand, withstand, and Stand that we are to take up a defensive posture there. And we're able to stand, he goes on to say, having girded your waist with truth. That is doctrine, the, the belt. We'll come back and study this in detail, but the belt that uh, the Roman soldier wore around his waist was the anchor point for the rest of his armor. So that his breastplate, his, his greaves hanging down around his his uh, thighs, his, his sword, everything was anchored to that belt. So what held it, all of his armor together was the um, uh, belt around his waist. So you gird your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's the, first the imputed righteousness of the believer. And then as he advances in spiritual growth, the experiential righteousness that comes with growth. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's the foundation. The hobnail boots that the Roman soldiers wore enabled them to take a firm stand when they were in combat. So that they could plant their feet and lower their uh, spears if necessary. Or to uh, raise their large uh, shield so that when the soldiers attacked they would be able to stand their ground. It says, above all, taking the shield of faith. The shield of faith is a defensive weapon. It is designed to prevent the enemy's weapons from uh, uh, getting to you. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Notice, it doesn't say most of them, some of them. It says all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the Word of God there is rhema, which is the spoken word, not the written word. And the sword of the Spirit here is the mykairos, the short sword that was used um, in a close combat situation. And if you look at, how, at the combination here, it was used primarily as a defensive weapon. This is not where it was used as an offensive weapon. But the sword of the word is used to parry the assaults of the enemy. The example of this is when Jesus is uh, being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. When Satan would quote scripture illegitimately and out of context, that's the assault. That's the temptation. How would Jesus parry the temptation? By the word of God, the accurate and correct use of the word of God. So he's not going out engaging the Satan in battle. He is not in an offensive mode. He was in a defensive position, and as Satan attacked, he used the Word of God, the promises of God, in a correct way in order to parry the temptation. So we're to take the helmet of salvation, which a helmet protects the head, its salvation protects the, 
the, uh, the thinking of the believer, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with prayer and supplication of the Spirit. Now, that's just a brief overview. I want to take more time to develop that as we get into the subject, but I just want to establish the principle from that section that the believer's position to be strong, he stands. To be strong, he stands on the firm, protected by God's provision. Just as a believer stands protected by the armor, we're to stand by way of analogy, what we've developed as our teaching analogy, we're to stay inside the soul fortress. Now, I want you to turn to one other passage, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. This is another crucial passage by way of introduction to understand how the believer stands as strong in the angelic conflict. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. The command is to be humble. That's part of grace orientation. Grace orientation is the fourth of the five spiritual skills developed in spiritual infancy. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. God is the one who promotes us. If God doesn't promote you, you are not promoted. And then we're told how. We have a... uh, Uh, participle of means. We humble ourselves by casting all of our anxiety, that is, our fears and our worries, upon Him because He cares for you. And then verse 8, be of sober spirit. That doesn't mean the lack of alcoholic beverage. It means to think clearly. The only way you can think clearly and objectively is if Bible doctrine is dominating the thinking of your soul. So it means to think clearly and objectively, be on the alert. That means you know that you are involved in spiritual warfare. There is a dimension to our life that is invisible and unseen, yet very real. And if we are ignorant of that, then we can easily be defeated. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, Satan is not directly doing this with 99.9% of us. You always hear somebody say, oh, the devil's after me. Well, the devil is not ubiquitous. He's not omnipresent. He is usually challenging believers' uh, integrity in the throne room of God, and he's not down on the planet, but his minions are, the demons. So we have to study something about who the demons are, where they came from, and what their abilities are. His demons are down here, and they're involved in things, but the demons also work primarily through indirect means and not direct means. Part of the problem today is you have to avoid two extremes. One extreme is the result of of, uh, 18th and 19th century rationalism, and that produced a rejection of the existence of a personal devil and demons. And on the other hand, you have to fight the mystics on the other hand and the the devil-made-me-do-it crowd who are finding a devil behind every bush. And the reason I have trouble and I'm an alcoholic is because I'm plagued by a demon of spirits. And if I've am if i got problems with drugs, I've got a demon of drugs. If I've got problem with bitterness, I've got a, you know, there's a spirit. That means a demon of bitterness or anger or whatever it is. In other words, it's not my fault. It's a demon who's influencing me and, And I just have to figure out some way to expel uh, the demon. 
And so we use that to avoid personal responsibility. And the truth of the Scripture lies between those two extremes, both of which um, distract believers from the reality of God's Word. In uh, 1 Peter 5.9, we're told the solution. The devil certainly is involved either directly or indirectly, mostly directly through the cosmic system. He's promoting all kinds of ideas, thoughts, beliefs, opinions, many of which sound good. You know, the devil's not stupid. He's the most brilliant creature God ever created. And he is going to manufacture false systems that sound good, look good, and work. And they are going to be, as much as possible, uh, in accord with truth. They're going to look like the truth. They'll be 95, 96, 98% right. But it's the 2 or 3% that's wrong that's going to destroy the entire system and devastate your spiritual life and get you off track and carnal. So what's the solution? Verse 9, 1 Peter 5, 9, But resist him. And there we have an aorist active imperative of the verb me. That's the same word that we had over in Ephesians uh, 6, 10 and following. me. And it means to stand against, to take up a defensive posture. Notice, we're not to engage the, de- the, the devil in battle. We're not to punch him out or wrestle him to the floor or rebuke the devil. None of that is biblically authorized. And yet you'll find all kinds of popular teachers today who are teaching on spiritual warfare saying that you have to do just that, rebuke the devil. And, and there's no basis in Scripture for that at all. So what I'm saying is that, that John in 1 John 2 is praising these adolescent believers because they have had a measure, a victory, advancing through spiritual childhood beyond the distractions that the cosmic system throws at the believer, and or, the young believer, in order to get him away, get his priorities off of the Word of God, and to get his focus on other issues and details in life. Now, as I stated earlier, in order to understand this, we have to get into the doctrine of the angelic conflict. So we're going to develop that under a number of different uh, points. First of all, we need to define what we mean by the angelic conflict. Start with a definition. It's always good to start with a definition so we understand what it is that we're talking about. Angelic conflict is a term that relates to the invisible spiritual warfare between the forces of Satan and the forces of God. It refers to the invisible spiritual warfare between the forces of Satan and the forces of God. The angelic conflict began at some unknown time in eternity past. It is not eternal. It had a beginning, and it began with the fall of Satan uh, at some time in eternity past. We're not told how long ago that was. It could have been 10, 15, 20,000 years ago, or it could have been much longer. I hesitate to add a lot of age to it. The reason most people want to add a lot of age to these things is because the... Um, uh, uh, the, of the impact of creation, or excuse me, because of the impact of evolution. 
evolution used to just say that the earth or the universe was only 50 or 60,000 years of age. Back in the early 19th century, some Christians thought they could, they could somehow uh, compromise with that, that they could find, figure out a way to come up with an extra 30 or 40,000 years in, in, um, in Genesis chapter 1. But that was a long time ago, and now the uh, evolutionists are putting billions of years in there, and that's completely unnecessary, and there's no basis for that. So we always have to be careful that we're not being influenced by the cosmic system of uh, especially Darwinian evolution. So at some unknown time in eternity past, Satan rebelled against God, and that began a warfare between the, the angels who followed Satan and the angels of God, the forces of Satan and the forces of God. And this is displayed in human history in what is called spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is a metaphor in Scripture for the conflict, the, the fight, the struggle of the spiritual life. It does not mean that we're fighting spirits. Uh, you chuckle, but that's how most people are taking it this day. They, they've, they've gotten into this kind of a superstitious, mystical approach, and what spiritual warfare is restricted to is, is engaging the demons in some kind of one-on-one combat. And that is not what the Bible teaches at all. Spiritual warfare is usually a metaphor for the struggle of the spiritual life, the growth in the spiritual life, and that, of course, is related to the, the overall angelic conflict because the believer in the church age is a testimony to the grace of God and our growth and our advance in, in spiritual growth is just another piece of evidence against the claims of Satan that the creature can run his life on his own terms as well as God could run it. So that is Satan's basic contention, and we'll look at that in a minute. But this is just the basic definition that angelic conflict is the invisible spiritual warfare between the forces of Satan and the forces of God. Point number two, the course of the angelic conflict. The course of the angelic conflict. It began in eternity past when the highest of all the angels, who's called Lucifer in the King James translation of Isaiah chapter 14, uh, that may not be the best translation, but that's the one that came across in the, in the King James Version, and it, so it has been accepted. Lucifer, and Lucifer recruited, Lucifer became uh, proud and arrogant, rebelled against God, wanted to have all of the same power and praise that God had, and so he rebelled against God because he wanted to be God. He wanted to be the one in control. And so he fell. That's referred to as Satan's fall. And that began the, the prehistoric revolt. And he managed to entice one-third of the angels to follow him. Apparently there was a trial. Now, there's nothing in the Scripture that states that um, explicitly. But it is implied by a number of metaphors and terms. For example, the term Satan in the Hebrew means accuser. And it is a term that is used in legal context text of someone who goes into a court and brings an accusation against someone else. You also have the word uh, diabolos, which has the same, a similar connotation in Greek. We have uh, pictures like in Zechariah chapter 3, where you have Joshua the high priest standing before the Supreme Court of Heaven, and he's being accused by Satan. 
And so you have, once again, a courtroom scene. So there are a number of places in Scripture that use the analogy of a trial. And so we look at this, and apparently there was some sort of a trial in eternity past, and the angels were condemned to the lake of fire. Matthew 25:41 states that this is the destiny of, these fallen, of Satan and the fallen angels. And it's in the past tense, which indicates that the lake of fire is in existence, and they've been condemned to the lake of fire in eternity past. Now, if they were condemned to the lake of fire in eternity past, why aren't they there? Well, apparently, we can infer that human history and what's going on with the human race has something to do with that angelic revolt and that trial. We can infer that from a number of passages in the New Testament which talk about how the angels uh, are watching us. The angels observe us. They, they long to look into the things that God is doing in our lives. We are on display as it were in a tremendous coliseum and all the angels are in the stands and we're down on the field and they're watching how we handle things in life because as they see us trust God and rely upon Him in every situation, then they learn things about the grace of God that they could learn in no other way. So human history is, was created and the human race was created in order to demonstrate certain things about God's character and His integrity before the angels. Now, why would that be necessary? Well, many have inferred from this that apparently Satan hurled a challenge at God. Nothing in the Scripture states this explicitly, but it's implied. And usually it's stated that Satan challenged God's fairness, his justice. How can a loving God cast his creatures into the lake of fire? I think there's a lot more to it than that. I think Satan said, well, God, you're not fair. You're not giving me a chance. Give me an opportunity to show what I can do. I'm just as capable as you are. I can be God. I can run things. I can rule a planet. I can rule the people. And I can be just as successful as you are. And it's not fair for you to not let the creature rule and reign on his own. And that makes sense because such a large emphasis in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament, is on the idea of obedience to God's authority, submission to His authority, that the path to, to, to uh, of true leadership and authority is to learn to be humble and to be a true servant and not to give in to the arrogance which was the sin of the devil. And so that the true mature believer is someone who uh, masters humility is not arrogant, someone who relies upon God, is completely uh, oriented to divine authority, and those who become servants are those who will rule and reign over the angels in the millennial kingdom and in eternity. And so, therefore, those character attributes that are emphasized in Scripture seem to be the ones that God is stressing and necessary to be in the creature, and the creature that doesn't have those can't function successfully. And so God is demonstrating that His way is the only way and that the creature can only have success by being completely submissive to the Creator. So that is the development of the angelic conflict. Now, let's break it down and look at, look at the timeline. First of all, the creation of the angels. We don't know when they were created. God created a vast number of angels. We don't know how many there are. Revelation refers to them as myriads upon myriads. So there's millions, if not billions, of angels. We don't know the exact number, but it is a finite amount. 
Angels were created. They are not procreated. Angels do not marry and have baby angels. Angels are not human beings who die and then become uh, angelic beings in the next life. Angels are a different order of being altogether. They are a spirit being, and they are immaterial. And the Bible says that they have bodies of light so that they can appear, they can uh, dematerialize, they can also have take on the complete appearance and function of a material body. When the Lord came to uh, Abram's tent in Genesis chapter 17 uh, by the oaks of Mamre, then those angels that accompanied them that then went on to Sodom and Gomorrah to warn Lot, those angels came into the tent. They look like men. They're described as men. They talk human languages. Angels are never pictured as speaking any other than a human language in the Bible. So when, you talk, when Paul talks about uh, languages of angels, he's merely speaking hyperbolically in 1 Corinthians 13. There's no indication angels have a separate language at all in the Scriptures. So those angels came in. They sat down. They did, their bodies didn't pass through the chairs. They uh, sat down at the meal and they drank the wine that they were given. They ate the food that they were given. So they had, uh, were able to take on a material appearance with all of the functions of a material body. Now that's important to understand some things that we're going to get into a little later on. So they had the ability to take their immaterial light-based body and transform it into something that was physical, material, and had all of the functions of a regular human body so that for all intents and purposes and appearances, they appeared to be human. God created the angels. There were various orders of angels. There were, the highest order were the cherubs. Cherubim, the I-M, is the plural ending in the Hebrew language. There were the cherubim. There were the seraphim. They had different uh, wings. The cherubs had four. The seraphs, or the cherubs had six. The seraphs had four. And these were the um, highest order of angels. There are also archangels. But these angels were all created together at one time prior to the creation of the universe. Now, how do we know that? Well, turn with me in the Old Testament to Job chapter 38, verse 7. Job chapter 38, verse 7. It's very important to understand the order. Job 38, verse 7. This is toward the end of the book of Job when God is having a little talk with Job about his arrogance and his creaturely orientation. Most people know the story of Job, how, how uh, Satan looked at Job's life and said, Well, you know, Lord, the only reason Job worships you and the only reason he's obedient is you're so good to him. Look at, all, look at the material prosperity he has. Look at his, his flocks. Look at his herds. Look at his home. Uh, he's got a great family. Look at all of his children. Everybody loves him. Everything's going wonderful. If he didn't have all that, he wouldn't worship you at all. So God said, okay, evaluate him. Test him. You can do everything but touch his body. So he lost his children. They were all killed in in, uh, various crises. He lost his his flocks and his herds. Everything was taken away from him except for his his wife. Uh, He probably thought that was unfortunate at times because of the way she responded. She did not handle the crisis well at all and just blamed him and told him to curse God and die. He probably said, well, why don't you curse God and die? But 
Now I'm getting into speculation. Anyway, so Job's three friends all gave him bad advice because it wasn't doctrinally based. They all said, well, Job, the reason you're suffering is you must have done something wrong. That's always our presupposition. See, sometimes we go through uh, adversity, suffering, testing in order to give us the opportunity to apply doctrine and glorify God, which was the situation here. And man thinks that he knows everything and he can answer uh, all, the, all the questions and solve everything on his own and that somehow God ought to answer to him. And so Job finally caved in and, and he began to question God. And so God came to him in a whirlwind and began to explain to Job that he was the creator and Job was the creature, and the creator, the, I mean, the creature does not have the right to question the creator because he, he doesn't need to have the need to know about how everything is going to work in his life. Well, in the midst of this little rhetorical question answer session, God reveals some interesting things about the order of creation. He says to Job, You're so smart, Job. Well, just answer these questions. Verse, verse 4 Where were you? When I laid the foundation of the earth. Now, the Hebrew word used there for foundation is a standard word used for the foundation of any building, any structure. It is not some metaphorical term that we can take it and just make it mean, you know, the raw materials of the universe. He's talking about the creation of the earth here. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? He's using uh, poetry here. It's very dramatic for emphasis. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Don't you, Job? You know all the answers. Or who stretched the line upon it? That's used, Again, it's talking about construction. It's, it's taking a line to make sure everything is even. He's, he's using the metaphor of a, of a construction engineer who's, who's building a building, laying the foundation, putting up the framework, making sure everything is correct in order to make his point. He says, verse 6, to what were its foundations fashioned or who laid its cornerstone? All of this is talking about the fact of God's creation of planet Earth. When God created planet Earth, he then said, when... The morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So at this point, what we are told is that all the sons of God, the term sons of God in the Old Testament, B'nai Elohim, or just B'nai Elohim, is a technical term for angels, not for believers. You need to make sure you understand that. It is never used in the Old Testament to refer to uh, believers. In fact, there's always a verse that's translated sons of God in a passage in Deuteronomy. I even read it by by a systematic theologian who failed to check the Hebrew. And he said that uh, the idea that sons of God just refers to angels can't be documented. But guess what? This passage isn't B'nai Elohim. It is B'nai Adonai. And it is a totally different term and is not this technical term. So you always have to check the Hebrew. But in the Hebrew language, B'nai Elohim always refers to the angels. So we, we know from this that when God created the earth, there was no division among the angels. So the term sons of God still refers to the demons. It refers to them in Job 1 and in Job 2. So sons of God isn't just... The holy angels. It refers also to the fallen angels. So all the sons of God are united here. They all shout for joy at God's creation. So angels are created and then the earth is created. Now if we 
take this and we apply it to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, 1 starts off by saying, In the beginning, better sheet, in the beginning, God created, better sheet, bara Elohim, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hashemayim v'ha'eretz in the Hebrew. Now, God created bara. Only God can create using the verb bara. Only God is ever the subject of that verb, which indicates it's a special kind of creative activity. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the next verse says, and the earth was without form and void. But in the Hebrew, it's not a consecutive clause. It's a disjunctive clause. And the reason you know that is a simple Hebrew syntax. Normally, if it's a continuative phrase where he did this and then he did that and then he did this, and just telling one thing after another in sequence, you have the, the, the conjunction vav is connected to the verb. But when the vav that begins the sentence, the and, that's the, the conjunction, when that's connected to a noun, it's disjunctive, but, or now, it indicates a break. So now, or but, the earth was with, without form and void, tohu vabohu. There are three things said there in Genesis 1-2 about the state of the earth in verse 2. It's tohu vabohu, it's without form and void. Darkness is on the face of the deep. Now, the term darkness um, and deep are terms that are always used to indicate divine judgment, along with tohu vabohu. So, these three things that are said in Genesis 1-2 always all, all indicate that something catastrophic has occurred after Genesis 1-1. It's an indication... That of judgment. If you take the time to look at Revelation chapter 21, you'll discover that in the eternal state, there's no darkness. Not only that, there's no salt sea in the eternal state. Why? Those always indicate judgment. They always indicate the presence of sin and the presence of evil. And they're used that way. That doesn't mean that the saltwater ocean is evil. It doesn't mean that darkness is evil, but it's always used to represent that. And so when God originally created the heavens and the earth, they were light. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. We read that in John 1, 1 John 1, 4. And so God creates the heavens and the earth. Everything is perfect. The angels are all united. And then something happened that brought judgment by Genesis 1, 2. So there's a time lapse. Now, we can't go ram, cram, and jam all the so-called geologic ages or evolution into that lapse between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. There's no reason for that. There's no indication anywhere in the text for that. There's no support for it in anything biblically or scientifically. Uh, The only reason people did that was back in the early 1800s. They thought, my, 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 geology's now discovered that the earth is about 30,000 or 40,000 years old, so we've got to come up with some place where we can find that time. Let's put it between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. So they put it in there, and then they crammed the dinosaurs and cavemen and everything else into that in order to, to compromise with the developing theories of evolution. But lo and behold... 30, 40,000 years wasn't enough. It expanded to several million and then several billion years, and yet many Christians still teach this compromise theory. The flood explains all the problems with geology and dinosaurs and everything else, and I don't want to get sidetracked by that, and we'll talk about that another time. The only point I want to make as we develop our study of, of the fall of Satan 
is that it occurred between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And next time when we come back, we will look at the passages that teach on the fall of Satan in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this time together that we can realize that, that we are, as believers, that we are in this tremendous spiritual conflict, the angelic conflict that is extended from eternity past, and that we play a vital role as, as witnesses to your grace and to your integrity and to your goodness. And Father, now as we study these things, we would pray that we would be challenged by realizing that there is something much greater, much broader going on around us and that we are uh, part of this, this mighty conflict and we do play a vital role and our responsibility is to grow in advance to spiritual maturity. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal life and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. That Jesus Christ died on the cross as part of this uh, whole display of your grace. He died on the cross as a substitute for the sins of mankind, so that by simple faith alone in Christ alone, we can have eternal life. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has never done that, that they would take this opportunity right now to put their faith in Christ alone for eternal salvation. Salvation is not a matter of moral reformation. It's not a matter of church attendance or ritual. It is simply a matter of believing that Christ died as your substitute and that there is salvation in no other. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.